This is the Environmental Integrity Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Pelton. My guest today is Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, a vice president at the National Wildlife Federation. Dr. Ali worked for 24 years at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency until March of 2017. And he was a founding member of EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. He started working on social justice issues at the age of 16 and joined the EPA as a student. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ali. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, let's do it. Why did you leave EPA? (laughs) Well, you know, it came out of a lot of prayer, a lot of conversations. You know, um, I saw what the new administration, which was the Trump administration at that time, um, had said that they were going to do in, in relationship to not honoring science, in relationship to the elimination of programs that were critical for frontline communities and literally protecting their lives and their health. Um, so I knew that I couldn't be a part of that. But so many folks had invested so much in me over the years um, and trust um, and their time. And um, I knew that these actions from the administration that was just starting at that time was, was going to go against everything that both folks on the outside had worked for. And when I raised my right hand and took that oath, I knew it was against that as well. And so what happened to the Office of Environmental Justice at EPA under Trump? They were trying to eliminate it. And uh, because there was so much attention um, from you know, great folks across the country and a little bit from myself. Uh, they were not able to eliminate that office. Um, and it ended up getting moved uh, and also sort of taken down the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the food chain, but definitely the org chart uh, where it used to be a national program office and then it got taken down three levels so that it would be less effective. Got it. It sounds a little bit like Trump tried to cut the overall budget of EPA by a third or more, but Congress, including some Republicans, wouldn't let him do it. Right. Well, Congress, you know, it, it, it is a blessing that men and women of good conscience were willing to stand up and do the right thing in that instance um, and, to, and to push back against the president, um, to say that clean air and clean water um, you know, for everyone is important, but, you know, vulnerable communities have been suffering from decades um, with not being able to fully uh, have that happen in their respective communities. Um, so, um, you know, I give uh, uh, honor to the folks who worked on the Hill who are willing to do that. So how can the incoming Biden administration better tackle this issue of environmental justice? A lot of people say just going back to the old Obama-Biden administration is not good enough. We think of terrible tragedies like the contamination of drinking water in Flint, Michigan with lead. I also think about, for example, communities around oil refineries. The Environmental Integrity Project did a study of benzene, a carcinogen, leaking out of the refineries in Philadelphia, Houston, all over the country into minority neighborhoods nearby. We found extremely high levels of benzene getting out at the fence line into communities. How do we better tackle issues like that? Oh, well, they can do a number of things. You know, the first uh, sort of step in the process is rebuilding trust with 
uh, communities. The next thing is to make sure that you're fully integrating environmental justice into all, all the policy programs and activities that the agency does. When you go down to some of those specific examples that you just shared with us, you've got to understand that there are cumulative impacts happening inside these communities. And in many instances, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency sort of regulates one uh, impact at a time. And so not only with EPA, but with other federal agencies and departments that have a distinct responsibility for environmental justice, you have to bring all of them into the mix to really understand both the impacts that are happening in communities and then to also be able to focus on opportunities for those communities. So those are a few of the things along with making sure that there's real uh, enforcement where needed. Um, and, and that, you know, those entities that are not living up to the letter of the law understand that, um, you know, that, that folks are going to be uh, on the scene, they're going to be paying attention, they're going to be evaluating, um, and, and they're going to be putting the proper pressures on them to uh, make sure that they are not uh, causing these additional impacts in these communities. I've been reading in the news that you're being considered for some positions in the new administration, perhaps as director of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. How can the White House better tackle this issue of environmental justice than EPA? No, well, that's an excellent question. You know, when I was in the federal government, um, you know, under a number of other administrations, I was the only senior advisor for environmental justice at the latter part of the Obama administration. So the White House has the ability to utilize things like the interagency working group. Uh, it comes out of Executive Order 12898 that President Clinton signed. And there are 17 federal agencies and departments that have a distinct responsibility for environmental justice. So having an, an entity there in the White House to help to convene, uh, to help to make sure that we're also leveraging the resources and capacity that all of those federal entities bring gives communities an opportunity to truly transform. I often say move from surviving to thriving. Um, so by having a president, a vice president, uh, and those respective entities in the White House, you can really make real change happen. It's one thing to talk about transforming EPA and even transforming the federal government. But how about transforming our broader American society? For example, the environmental movement and environmental nonprofits historically have been overwhelmingly white and have often focused on issues that are remote to the concerns of people of color and lower income people, urban areas. For example, I live in Baltimore City, and here in Baltimore, we have terrible problems with raw sewage in our streams, in our parks, in our inner harbor, with lead in our homes, in our schools. How can we have the environmental movement and society in general care more about and do more about environmental justice issues like this? Yeah, well, I think we're at a, at, at a perfect moment for that. You know, COVID-19 has put a spotlight on the, the disparities and the injustices that have continued to happen inside of our most vulnerable communities, African-American communities, Latinx communities, indigenous communities, Asian Pacific Islander communities, and lower wealth white communities. Um, and by helping folks to understand the, the significance of these impacts, most folks don't know that we got 100,000 people who are dying prematurely from air pollution every year in our country. That's more than are dying from gun violence, more than are dying from car crashes and a number of other uh, types of, of tragic situations. We got 24 million folks who have asthma and 7 million kids. Um, so when folks begin to understand you know, how significant some of these problems are, then they begin to pay a bit more attention, especially if they see themselves reflected 
uh, in some of these impacts. You know, we got over 90% of our national parks that are dealing with significant air pollution. Most people don't know that. And most people um, at some point uh, in their lives and for many people on a fairly regular basis, they attend, you know, these outdoor spaces. Uh, most folks don't know, you know, we've got millions of people don't have access to water and sewage in our country and the diseases that come from that. And especially in a COVID-19 moment where if you have these long-term medical conditions, it makes you more vulnerable to infections and hospitalizations and the loss of life. So as we help, uh, you know, folks across our country to better understand that, you know, these challenges are happening and then tying it to healthcare um, and the cost of, you know, exploding costs that are happening from healthcare and how this uh, contributes to that. So it gives people a better understanding of how and why we need to get engaged. You raise another incredibly important point is that many of the decision makers over the years uh, have been organizations that lack diversity. Um, they lack the diversity, of course, of, of the racial, um, but they also lack diversity in the sense of folks coming with a different set of experiences and a different set of solutions. Um, so if we're not willing to um, address those issues, we're going to have a hard time. The last point that I'll make is that many people across our country, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Independent, or Republican, are concerned about climate change. And you cannot win on climate change if you don't win on environmental injustices or environmental racism, depending on how you want to frame it out. Because the majority of fossil fuel facilities are located in our most vulnerable communities. The fossil fuel infrastructure runs through those communities. And when you look at our transportation uh, policies and, and routes and systems, they also have significant impacts that are happening in these communities and they're playing a, a serious role in the warming up of our planet. So as we begin to help people understand the interconnectedness of all these issues and what's going on in black and brown and lower wealth white communities, then folks can begin to see um, how we're all in it together. I often share with folks, Dr. King had a, a famous quote for me, most folks don't know it, where he said, we come to these shores in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Uh, nothing could be more apropos than many of these uh, situations that we're currently dealing with. You mentioned being in the same boat. We're all in the same boat when it comes to COVID. Certainly people of color are being disproportionately impacted, but even Rudy Giuliani was just hospitalized with COVID. Yeah. I mean, COVID is, is one of those tragic situations where if we learn the lessons, we can build the right infrastructures um, to really protect folks. We got 24, 25 million people are living in medically underserved areas and in physician deserts. And we all know we got 80 million people who are uninsured and underinsured. And COVID, um, you know, feeds off of, as I said before, long-term medical conditions. So um, we, we've got an opportunity um, to actually do better. My, my grandmother used to say, when you know better, do better. You know, we know why uh, many of the, the uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus has exploded. You know, uh, part of it is the politicalization um, of the issue. And it never should be. It's almost like, you know, when people sort of politicize, you know, clean air and clean water. Those are basic human rights. General interests, not special interests. Yeah. And, and you know, it should be a basic human right also for folks, not only in our country, but across the planet, that we're going to do everything that's necessary to protect them from COVID-19. But let me ask you this. 
How do we tackle the problem of COVID without also harming our cities? Vaccines are becoming available, but they might not be widely distributed to the public for several months. Meanwhile, public schools in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Washington, all over this country are shut down. Millions of kids are not receiving an education. They don't have laptop computers. They don't have Wi-Fi hookups. Meanwhile, the kids out in the rich suburbs are getting their education. They're going to private schools. That is not fair. How do we deal with the problem that people are fleeing cities because of their fear of viruses and germs? They might not come back. People are fleeing employment centers. Office buildings are emptying out. How do we tackle the problem of public health and COVID without also crippling our cities? Well, you know, that's a paradigm that in the environmental justice movement we've had to navigate for decades now. Folks used to say, you know, if we address this pollution that's happening, that we will cripple our economy um, and that we won't be able to move forward. And, and we know that is, that's a false paradigm. If we fast forward to the COVID-19 pandemic that we find ourselves in, the question is, are we willing to make the investments now to address what's happening or are we going to allow this to linger? I'm blessed that I get a chance to work with some of the top scientists around the world on a number of different issues, whether it's climate issues or public health issues. And they've been very clear from the beginning. If we would have done the right steps early on, then we wouldn't be facing the situation that we currently are. Now let's fast forward, you know, nine months or eight months down the road. We are now faced once again with the question, if we're willing over the next set of weeks to do the right thing, wear your mask, make sure that we're not gathering, you know, in large numbers, making sure, of course, that you're washing your hands, which many is difficult for many folks because they don't have access to, to uh, running water in, in, some, in some instances. So when you talk about schools and education, which is critically important to me, we have an opportunity to build out the broadband because when you're talking about uh, students of color, many of them are dealing with a digital divide situation. So if we know that, then let's get busy and let's actually fix that. When we know that folks don't have access uh, to healthcare, we got a chance um, once we get our arms around this to fix that. Um, and I can go down the laundry list of things when you look at, um, you know, uh, President-elect Biden's plans that will help us to make sure that both this pandemic and the next set of pandemics that will come, that we are better prepared for that. So the question is really, are we willing for a small amount of time to do the right thing until we can get the vaccine to enough folks? Will people actually understand that it is not a political issue to wear a mask? But what it is, is addressing a public health emergency that's going on. As part of the transition, are you already talking to President-elect Biden and his people? I, I have had no conversations uh, with folks um, so far about, you know, any jobs or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. If you were asked to give some advice to the president-elect, what would be your number one piece of pragmatic advice? Uh, to get extremely focused on environmental injustice and climate change uh, straight out the gate um, and make sure that you have the right team in place. Make sure that you're building the capacity that's necessary in the federal government to take on this very significant challenge that's going on. And then if they ask me the other thing the, that to focus on, I would say for us to be very clear where these environmental injustices have happened um, so that um, it helps us to better address COVID-19. All right. Well, Dr. Ali, 
thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been the Environmental Integrity Podcast, and I'm Tom Pelton. For more information about the Environmental Integrity Project, visit www.environmentalintegrity.org.